Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Culture of Honor. How many of you have read this book? How many of you have never heard of this book? Uh, This book was written by Danny Silk. We've had Danny in before. Uh, He was the pastoral care guy out at Bethel. Uh, It's a great book. Matter of fact, my spiritual father gave me a a copy of it before it was published, and I marked it all up on my hard drive. Uh, It's a great book. It's probably the best treatment of fivefold ministry that I've ever read. Uh, I think it's chapter two. Uh, He explains the different dynamics uh, with apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral, and teaching leadership gifts. Uh, But it also deals with how do you How do we navigate life in relationships of honor? And what we were just talking about is one such uh, example. These these type of situations really demand that we navigate these things correctly. And it really does go along with what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Uh, We were looking at uh, three, four weeks ago, we began to look at what are we contending for? And uh, we're looking at the four progressive expressions of the life in the spirit. So there is, we encounter the spirit in salvation, the indwelling spirit comes to live within us, and then from there we encounter him in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and the analogy we've been using, which is a a, a very thoroughly grounded analogy in scripture is that of water, the spirit being, uh, or water being an analogy of the spirit. And so Isaiah talks about drinking from the wells of salvation. And so in salvation, we take a drink of him, he resides within us. Then in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we are submersed into the person of the Holy Spirit. We talked about how John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, talked about how uh, what he did with water, he would, he would immerse people in water. He said, what I'm doing with water, the one coming after me, he will do with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so Jesus is the baptizer in the spirit. We're submerged, saturated, soaked, and dripping in him. That should make you say hallelujah, should make you hunger for that. Uh, that's when we take a drink at salvation, but we're immersed in the baptism, in John chapter seven, it talks about rivers of living water being released from it, us. So in salvation, we receive from him, but in the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we become a source of supply for other people. We become a, a, a reservoir or a, a release of the river of God. And uh, now, one of the things we were talking about, I just wanna, because I've had this question a couple of times lately, different ones of us have come from different theological backgrounds. Uh, Some of you are still working through your theology. Some of you are trying to figure out what our theology is. And so here is is our theology, okay? When you are saved, the spirit you take, uh, you are a partaker of the divine nature. The spirit of God comes to live within you. 1 Corinthians chapter six says that he who is joined to the spirit becomes one with him in spirit. In other words, our We were dead in our trespasses and sins from birth because of the fall, but we drink of the Spirit, and that is the born-again experience. The Spirit comes to reside within us, and we're regenerated, the Spirit of God living within us. That is distinct from the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is subsequent to and distinct from 
what you receive at salvation. There are a lot of people who will have heaven as their eternal home who have never been baptized in the spirit. Does it, that doesn't affect their salvation. It does affect their quality of life in the spirit. But it doesn't affect their salvation. That's distinct from. So people have asked me, do you believe that people have to be baptized in the spirit to be saved? I do not. Now, let me just pause there because there's this one verse that is really problematic when we get into this whole subject because of the way people interpret it. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And it says this, we are all baptized in one spirit into one body. In one spirit, into one body. Now just freeze that phrase there for a moment because the, the, the wording of that phrase is very, very important. The formula for baptism, whether water baptism or spiritual baptism, spirit baptism rather, uh, the phrasing is always the same. You're baptized in something, into something. You're baptized in a substance, into an experience. In John's baptism, the first baptism we see in the New Testament, John is baptizing people into repentance. And remember when the Pharisees and some of the, 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 the scribes came and said, hey, baptize us. He said, no, you bring forth works, meet for repentance, and then I will baptize you into your repentance. He was gonna baptize them in a substance, water, into an experience, repentance, but he refused to baptize them into that experience until it was first a reality in their life. Water baptism didn't make them repentant. It sealed it after the fact. Okay, that's very important here. Because when we take that understanding of baptism and bring it into the baptism in the spirit, then that wording in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes sense. We're baptized in, in one spirit into one body. So there's a substance, the substance being the third person of the Godhead. We're immersed into him, saturated with him. But we're baptized not into repentance in the baptism of the Spirit. We're baptized, or Christian baptism in, in uh, Romans 6, we're baptized in water into his body, or into Christ's death, rather. And so all through Scripture, there's an in and an into. John's baptism in water into repentance. Christian baptism, Romans 6, in water into Christ's death. And in spirit baptism, we're baptized not in water, but in the third person of the Godhead, the, the Spirit of God. But what are we baptized into? His body. A lot of people read that and think, well, then that must be when you're saved. You get baptized in, the, in water, or in the Spirit, when you get saved, because that's when you're put in the body. No, because remember, baptism is always sealing something after the fact. You are baptized into the body once you are in the body of Christ as a born-again believer. Now, that experience is made real in your baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
The context of that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the, the charismatic gifts, the spiritual gifts given to us by the Spirit. We've talked about this many times. There are three categories of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There's Romans 12, the gifts from the Father. There's Ephesians 4, the gifts from the Son, which in actuality are people with grace upon them that are given to the church. And then there are the gifts from the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and those are what, we're, what are classically known as charismatic Pentecostal gifts. Those are awakened in our life when we are baptized in the Spirit into his body and your gifting comes alive and you realize your role in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? So the way you take your place in the body is by becoming aware of your gifting and beginning to function in that particular gifting, which designates your role. Some are ears, some are eyes, some are knuckles, some are knuckles, knuckleheads, no. So we're, we're all different members and when, when we function in our role, then we are taking our place in the body of Christ. And so I say all, all of that, I hope that made sense. That was a lot to say. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is distinct from and subsequent to salvation. It doesn't affect whether you go to heaven or not. It just affects the journey along the way and how effective you are along the way. So we talked about drinking from the wells of salvation at the new birth. Then we take a drink in John 7 and, the, and we're released the rivers of living water. And John adds to that. He said, Jesus was speaking of the spirit who had not yet been given. The father gave the son, but the son gave the spirit. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit, according to uh, John the Baptist. And so then we have that. Then we have this other analogy in scripture of outpourings, revival. We're a revival church. I'm a revival guy. We want the outpouring of the spirit. We pray, we cry out, we sing, open up the heavens. What we're talking about is the, the, the rain of God's presence coming in and filling the atmosphere. And it's very important that you get around individuals who attract clouds. Seriously. Years ago, went to uh, Korea to do some ministry in South Korea, and they took us, uh, and uh, right at the uh, demilitarized zone, there was a, a, a big building, glass, overlooking into North Korea in the demilitarized zone, and there was this fake city. It was literally a sheetrock and plywood skyscraper and at night, they would turn a floodlight on. There was no floors to light it up. And they had these big, they, they tried to make it look like it was a state-of-the-art city in North Korea. And it was just, just a pretend structure. It's tragic. And I have never seen such a vivid example of a cursed land as when I looked into North Korea. South Korea is high-tech and advanced and just an amazing, amazing place. And then you look into North Korea and it's like scorched earth because the grandfather of the present ruler, they're literally worshiped as the Trinity, the father, the son, and now the grandson. The grandfather tore up, pulled up all the trees to burn for firewood and therefore there was, the deforestation literally turned it into like a desert-like quality. Because when you don't have plant life, if you don't have something growing on the earth, there's nothing to 
cause the hydrological cycle to pull clouds in. So you can literally create a desert by destroying vegetation. But if you can cultivate plant life, if you can cultivate growth on the land, it will literally pull in clouds and you can create your own oasis. Now, I'm gonna tell you, that'll preach. You can think yourself into barrenness. You can interact with those around you in such a way that you literally create barrenness and fruitlessness in your own life. Or you can go anywhere and you can create an oasis given time that you begin to cultivate things. And so what we need to do is we need to create an environment that pulls in the clouds of outpouring again and again and again. Because that's what will replenish the riverbeds of your personal life. We, need, we don't just get filled with the Spirit. Our initial infilling is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But Paul said, keep on being filled. We need to be replenished again and again. There's, there's several reasons for that. I believe one of them really is that we leak and we're meant to leak. But there's also the idea that we, are, we grow in our capacity. What kept me filled before doesn't fill me anymore. I need more of him. He's growing our capacity. And so we need to keep on being filled. And one of the ways in which we do that is we get in environments where the spirit of God is moving. That's why believers need more than just to have hands laid on them and be baptized in the spirit. They need to be connected to places where there's continual outpourings of the spirit. We need to be in those environments. So those are outpourings. And that's a wonderful thing. But where we got to last week, and I want to finish this this week, hopefully, is this, that there is a superior expression of life in the Spirit beyond salvation, beyond the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and beyond revival. And I'll tell you what, it took some convincing for me to think something was beyond revival. I've been crying out for revival for almost 40 years and experienced some of it, and I want more. But the Lord made it very, very clear to me in 2009 out of an encounter I had with him when he told me that the superior expression is the dew of Hermon. Psalm 133. And I, I shared it last week, but I'll share it real quick. We were, uh, we were in a soaking time and I was on the verge of snoring and you don't want to do that as a pastor. And, you know, so... I got up and I walked out in the, the lobby area. I was out by the men's restroom looking out over through the glass door where the, uh, the monkey bars are for the kids, the jungle gym. And uh, as I'm standing there just praying, all of a sudden I went into a vision and I saw our property and it was as if a large translucent dome, like a big bowl turned over on, was put over our property and all of a sudden this oil just began to flow, this dome of glorious oil. And I was so excited. I was, I was blown away. I was like, yeah. And the Lord, he, he spoke a couple of personal things to me. And then he said this, and the dew of Hermon will be released. And I'm so excited by what I saw, but frankly, a little disappointed by what I heard. Because I'm thinking, Lord, I want another outpouring. We were about a year out. 
uh, from the, the, the previous outpouring. It was like 2009. And, and uh, so I, I asked the Lord, I said, God, why do? That, it just frankly sounded kind of boring. You know, I want thunder, lightning, rivers. And I said, do? And the Lord said this. He said, it is my non-disruptive way of nourishing the land. And when he said that, he had my attention. Because the move of God we had had one year earlier was exhausting. It was exhausting. Outpourings are disruptive. They're wonderful, they're glorious, but you can't live in continual outpouring. Now, I know some of you disagree with me. I'm not gonna argue with you, okay? I would have argued with me 10 years ago, but we can't live in continual outpouring. There's something superior. And what that is, it's the expression of the, what the phrase is in scripture is the dew of heaven. You see this phrase show up all through the Old Testament. The dew of heaven. We talked about it last week, how the dew point is the measure of moisture in the air. You can have arid environments, and you can have humid environments, you can have soupy environments, and then you can have a place, the tipping point, where the air is so full of moisture, you feel it, but now it, it can no longer be contained in the invisible realm. It begins to deposit itself into the seen realm in little droplets known as dew. That's the idea behind the dew. And there is a tipping point that God wants to extend an invitation to you and I. He wants to release the dew. He doesn't want us just to have these, these times where, oh, do you feel his presence here? I can feel him. I, I love that. I'm addicted to his presence. You know, you can be addicted. David said, my flesh cries out. His flesh, his very body ached for the presence of the Lord. But God wants to give us more than just feeling him. He wants to deposit an expression of heaven on earth. Let's look at Psalm 133. Let's look at this passage. It is a very short, it's three verses. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let me just pause here. Part of the text is this phrase, a song of ascents of David. A song of ascents. There, were, there, was, a, there was a body of, of uh, psalms. I, I forget now, uh, how many of them there were and where they started and where they end, but this is right smack dab in the middle. And what, what most uh, scholars believe is they would stand on it, stare at the temple, they would quote that psalm, then they would move to the next one, quote the next psalm and quote the next psalm. And they were known as songs of ascent because they would ascend the temple stairs. I believe even that little phrase is anointed. I don't believe it's, it's just... An, ex, uh, an explanation of how they would utilize this, I believe there is a prophetic message there for you and I, that it is the way to go higher. There is a way to step into something and go up together. If we want more, then this is the invitation. Understand what this psalm is saying and we can go higher in God. So what does he say? Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When they're unified, they live in unity. 
And then he gives two analogies and then closes with this summation of a commanded blessing. It's saying this, there's, there's a, a dynamic that if we can touch this, it's going to produce two things. It's going to be like oil running down Aaron's beard. It's going to be like the, uh, the dew on Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. And then it says, and this is God's response. God will command his blessing there. There is a commanded blessing. God declares something, and when God declares that blessing, nothing can stand in its way. I'm trying to make you hungry this morning. I'm giving you a secret that David gave us. It's a secret to going higher, and it's a guarantee of blessing in your life if you will secure the criteria of this passage. So he gives us two analogies. The first one is verse two, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes, uh, or the hem of his garment. I like the hem better because it gets, gets farther. Uh, number three, it is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. Now, there are two, uh, two analogies and both of them deal with something different. Okay, one is that vertical flow. And this is very important. Now, I said last week that Psalm 133 is really an Old Testament expression of the truths that are unpacked for us in Ephesians chapter 4. That passage that talks about fivefold ministry, that talks about the fullness of God, that we each have been given a measure of the gift of Christ, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. If you really want to understand Ephesians chapter 4, you've got to understand this. Paul says, there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in all and, and through all. And then he says, he shifts gears. He's talking about the oneness, the oneness, the oneness, the unity of the body. And then he says, but to each one of us, a measure of the gift of Christ has been given. He's shifting gears because he's going he's to land something for you and I. Every one of us has a measure. Then he says, so God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, so that they can all do their part and come mature and enter into the full measure of the gift of Christ. So there's two phrases that are very crucial in Ephesians 4 if you want to understand what Paul is saying. The first phrase is a measure of the gift of Christ or a portion, uh, some, some translations say as Christ apportioned it. So what he's saying is every one of us in this room have a measure or a portion of the gift of Christ. None of us has the fullness in and of ourselves. And God intentionally limited it to that way. And only as we grow up into him who is the head, Ephesians 4 says, in unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, can we attain to the full measure of the gift of Christ? What Paul is communicating in Ephesians 4 is what he alluded to and he hinted at in Ephesians chapter 1, the last two verses. God has put everything under Christ for the church, comma, the fullness of him who fills that everything in every way. The body of Christ is the fullness of Christ. And so you and I cannot touch the fullness. There are things that God will intentionally, absolutely withhold from you as an individual. 
He will not give it to you in your prayer closet. He won't give it to you in your Bible study time. He won't give it to you no matter how much you fast and pray and whine and scream and beg him to do for you. He is going to hide it within a brother or a sister because he intends for you and I to be interdependent upon one another. And many of you have experienced that. I know I did. When I first got saved, man, I would fast and pray and cry out to God for answers, and it seemed like the heavens was brass, and I had this spiritual mother I worked for. She'd meet me at McDonald's, get me a cup of coffee, and she would just start to talk, and she would answer every one of the questions I was asking the Lord about. The Lord didn't give it to me in my prayer closet. He gave it to me over a McDonald's table and a cup of coffee through a spiritual mother because he wanted me to be interdependent upon some other people. This is why it's so crucial that we live in unity together. Because God will withhold things that we desire. Now, I want you to catch this, okay? This is the superior expression. There is more for us, Heartland. There is a whole lot more. But you know where it's going to be found? Not as much through an open heaven as much as it is through an open heart to one another. It's not just looking and saying, God, pour it out. It's looking across the aisle and say, God, release it from them. Relationship, unity together is the superior expression. When I was asking the Lord about this, I I think I mentioned this last week, but uh, I was asking the Lord, I said, God, what, I mean, I, I, had, I had hitched my wagon to revival, man. I had, I've been crying out for revival for decades. I'm thinking, Lord, don't mess with my theology. I've built my whole life on this. I'm gonna have to recant some things publicly if you're telling me there's something more. And he corrected me, and this is what he said. He said, outpourings were made necessary by the fall. It never rained in paradise. The way paradise was watered was through underground caverns that would open up and emit a mist. So they weren't dependent upon the heavens opening up. The earth was going to feed them, their nourishment, the water. And it was sin that caused rain to first arrive. And I'm telling you that if there's a place in God when God establishes strong churches that live in a high level of honor, when we live in a high level of honor, we can access the hidden caverns within one another. So we're no longer dependent upon the next outpouring, that we live in a greenhouse effect where we're accessing what one another carries. But what does that demand of us? It demands that we pass a very specific type of test. And that is the test of familiarity. Was it Luke 4? Remember Jesus was going from synagogue to synagogue. He came out of his 40-day fast, launched into ministry, and it says he went to Nazareth. Went to the synagogue, opened up the scroll, read Isaiah 61. It says they were all, they all spoke well of him. They were blown away. They said they were, they were, they, they, uh, I don't know the exact wording, but they they talked about the gracious words that he shared. 
There was a shift in the atmosphere. Grace was being released. 400 silent years had come to an end. And some of them are recognizing, oh my goodness, listen to this. Gracious words. Grace is being released into the atmosphere. And then, everybody's speaking well of him. And then, some smart aleck says, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? I remember when. And it literally shut down a move of God. And it said, Jesus, that's when Jesus said, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Why? Because of familiarity. The very thing that we need, and that is to live at a deep level of relationship with one another, is also the very impediment because it not only helps us to see one another's giftings, it also helps us see the stuff that's not so much gifting. We begin to know each other and what, who we really are, both good and bad. And I'm telling you, there is a grace from heaven that God wants us to walk in, that we recognize what we have and what we are and who, who one another are without stumbling over what we don't have and what we're not. That we still value what one another carries. And if we don't have that, we will actually forfeit what one another carries. The very answer to our heart cry is by and large in this room already. Now we're going to, we'll see outpourings. I'm telling you, it is eminent. There is a, a, planet earth is on a collision course with the next move of God. But if we're to secure the gains, if we're going to keep what we obtain through revival, if we're going to maintain it, it must be maintained through culture. I just, last night after the service, there was a guy, I, he's, he runs the, uh, the uh, camps at IHOP. And uh, he's spoken at our Tumwa church a number of times, so he reached out and said, hey, you know, would you have time to get supper? I said, sure. Well, then I realized, oh, we got a worship service. So I said, I'll go after... After, so after the service, went out to eat with them, and we were talking about this very thing about how uh, in order to keep what God gives us, we've got to learn to steward it well. And I was sharing with him, it was, I want to say about eight years ago now, the Lord began to speak to me, he said, give me three weeks in July, give me three weeks in July, give me, and I knew what that meant, oh man, another fast. So I asked some of the intercessors and there was a group of us that met for three weeks in July and uh, the only two things I remember of that whole fast is number one, how we broke it because uh, a number of the Latinos made some real Latino food to break the fast. It was glorious, just, just hallelujah. Did you feel that anointing? Hallelujah, it was awesome. The other thing I remember was I was walking through my living room and the History Channel was on and this guy says, Genghis Khan conquered more land than any man who ever lived. But upon his death, his empire evaporated because he was a gifted general, but a poor governor. And it was like an arrow went across the room and hit me in the chest. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, I have many wandering intercessors and homeless revivalists that have tremendous stories of battles won, 
but they have nothing to leave their children because they keep fighting for the same ground again and again. We know how to obtain, but we don't know how to maintain. And I'm telling you, the way to maintain a move of God and the gains of the last move. See, revival infers that you're backslidden. You need to live again, that's what it means. I don't wanna backslide. I wanna keep going higher. How do we keep that? It's, it's through developing a culture of honor where we really begin to have eyes to see. What did Paul say? No, no man after the flesh. To really see one another for who we really are. You know, Heartland's got a reputation for being a church, a prophetic church that really values the prophetic. If you fancy yourself prophetic, but you don't look at people through the spirit, I don't want to hear your prophecies. The most positive people on earth should be prophetic people. There's the old adage, you've all heard it, it doesn't take a prophet to see dry bones, it takes a prophet to see an army. It doesn't take a prophet to be critical. But it takes a prophetic person to look past all of that and see the golden people. I love when the Lord will show me something about somebody and I try to keep an archive in my head about each of you when I've, when I've heard words over your life and I try to remember what the Lord says because I want to look at you through that lens, the word of the Lord. I want to remind myself this is what the Lord said about them. I, I want to I look at them through that lens. Jim Thrasher, I don't, I don't think Jim and Brenda are here this morning, they, uh, but Jim... I remember one night in a board meeting, I laid hands on, no, no, it wasn't a board meeting, it was an elders meeting on a Saturday morning. I saw Jim, he had this uh, night vision goggle thing. You know, like those special forces? He could put it down and he saw into dark places. And I knew it was a pastoral gift that he could see golden people. I've never been able to see Jim the same way after that. Matter of fact, the reason I believe the Lord showed me that is so I can pull on that. Hey, Jim, what do you see? We need to see each other through the spirit and believe in each other. A truly prophetic culture is a hard place to live beneath your destiny. You know why? Because there's a whole group of people that pull you higher. It's through positive prophetic peer pressure. They call you to live up to your potential because they've heard from God about who you really are and they believe it before you do. And so we need to have that, those eyes to see and not stumble over the familiarity of seeing one another. It's so easy to, to get used to our idiosyncrasies and dismiss things. But there's a battle to be fought to go up higher, to honor the golden people and to begin to see that and ask God, God, help me to see them for who they are. Lord, I wanna see them through their gifting. I wanna see them through the gold that's in their life. And every one of us need people like that in our life. I am so grateful for the people who believed in me before I believed in myself. I remember there was a guy, Bill Everett. Did anybody ever meet Bill Everett? Bill went to be with, yeah. Uh, yeah, Ed and Bonnie knew Bill. Bill was a wonderful man of God. Uh, he was the assistant director at Teen Challenge when I went through back in 1983. Wonderful man of God, a man of the spirit. 
we were driving down the road one day and he was asking us students what we'd want to be. And I just kind of said, well, I'd kind of like to be a pastor. And I remember Bill looked in the rear view mirror and he said, Dave, you'd make a good pastor. All of a sudden, the blood rushed to my head. I thought I was going to pass out. I could not believe that a man of his stature would say that about me. I mean, I was barely saved. I was so messed up. But that man said something about my future. And because I so respected him, I thought, man, he knows better than I do. Maybe God would do that. You can be the voice to call people into their destiny, but you've got to have eyes to see. And I'm telling you, when we break into that, we're no longer dependent upon outpourings. Outpourings are great, but we're not dependent upon the environmental conditions anymore because we know where to go. There are hidden reserves of grace within each one of us. And God has hidden something you need in every person in this room. And if we can begin to access that, and some need more encouragement than others. We all know people, the backgrounds they came from. Uh, some of them are so filled with shame, they just, they can't see themselves the way God does. And we need to be those that will crank that up and begin to speak their destiny over them. Because when, we, when one goes up, we all go up. When the Lord spoke that to me about Psalm 133, I was asking him about that. I was so just puzzled by this thing of the dew on Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. I thought, what does that mean? That doesn't even make sense. You see, there's, there's two analogies here. There's the vertical. That's getting under anointed leaders, submitting to them, recognizing what they carry, and we all need that. It's, I'm not saying, oh, you get under an anointed pastor. I'm talking about all of us recognizing the leadership gifts upon each other and get under those in, in the circumstances where that person can lead best. And so there's this, this flow that goes down. And when we, when we are under authority, we can receive from that. But the second analogy is not this, this vertical thing. It's this horizontal thing. And it's the transfer of one mountain to the other. And I asked the Lord about that for weeks. I would, I would come in here and just lay up on the platform and ask him, Lord, what does that mean? I, I don't get it. What? And one day I'm laying up here and all of a sudden, I thought, duh. What it means is this. It is physically impossible for the dew of Hermon to fall on Mount Zion. They're too far apart. The idea is this. When we live in unity together when we're living in relationship and we're honoring what one another carries, then when one gets rained on, the rest of us get wet. I don't need to covet your spiritual gift. I don't need to covet Jim Thrasher's ability to see people in the spirit. I don't need to covet uh, Pastor Howell's ability to lead us in worship. I don't need his gift because I got his gift because I got him. And as long as I live in relationship with him, every time he gets touched, I get wet because I'm in relationship.
So now it's no longer competition in the body of Christ. Who can, who's going to get touched? Who's going to get the prophetic word? We can, we can sit here and one person gets a word. One person gets a healing. One person has a testimony of breakthrough, financial or relational. And we can all rejoice. Why? Because when it rains on them, we get wet. It's a shared blessing. It's when we live in unity together. We have that relationship. And God wants us to move deeper into this thing. I am convinced in the days to come, kingdom family, church families, real relationships will be more important than ever. I feel it from the Lord sometimes. Just his zeal that he wants to establish bright and shining lampstands in the spirit. Jesus warned the churches of the three first chapters of the book of Revelation about removing their lampstand. You can have a church with no oil and no light and they still meet. But what the Lord longs for are churches that register in the spirit. That if we could see, you look across the landscape and there's places of bright and shining lamps that people know where to go when they need a word from the Lord, when they need to encounter the Lord and they find it in other bodies, the other people in that body of believers. This whole thing of life groups is very, very important. You know the the teaching videos we do? That's really a side issue. It just gives us something to talk about. I mean, I believe what we're talking about. I, I should. I'm, I'm doing the talking. I believe it. But that isn't the most important thing about the life groups. It's really building relationships with those people. God wants to give you a support system. We talk about how's your personal relationship with God. Well, I want to ask you this morning, how is your corporate relationship with God how are your relationships doing often our struggle is because we're not getting plugged in with others that can be that support system sometime in the last 25 years I preached here no I was somewhere in the last year and a half we were talking about redwoods and it was so fascinating to me, I never knew this, but redwoods, the tallest, the, the tallest trees in the world, they don't have a deep root system. What they have, you don't see them growing alone. You can't grow a redwood alone because they have to intertwine and it's, their root system supports one another. So when, the, when, the, when it starts to blow, they're pulling on one another. You'd have to literally uproot the whole forest to get one to go down. You would think they would have a deep, deep root system, but they don't. It's just they wrap around each other and they hold each other up in the storms of life. You want to grow big in the spirit? You might be able to grow a good-sized spruce. You might be a good apple tree. But if you want to be a redwood, if you want to grow deep, and you want to, or, or tall rather, you want to be a giant in the faith, you've got to be running with other believers that we support one another. Amen? All right. You know what? I'm done. It is quarter till. I know. It's a sign and wonder. 
is, uh, is the worship team, are you guys available? Where are you at? Yeah, you want, yeah, here they are. Yeah, can, why don't you come on out here? Why don't you to stand? Before we, we're gonna, we're gonna close this thing in worship this morning, but I wanna, I wanna do something. Last week, we received communion. We were talking about how the Lord warns us in the book of 1 Corinthians not to take it unworthily, not recognizing the body of Christ. What he's saying is you, you violate, this is the body, and you, t- you partake of it in an unworthy form because you're holding odd against your brother, and you think, I'm going to take communion anyway. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing. That you can't be in good relationship with him but ignoring your relationship with one another. We've got to keep short accounts. I used to preach a message called Covenant Conflict Communion. God puts us in covenant with each other, binds us together with all our eclectic backgrounds, all our own opinions, and then we're bound to each other knowing that conflicts will arise. Covenant Conflict Character Communion. The way God gets at us is through those relationships, binds us together, and then passes us a cup and says, here, partake of my blood and my flesh. Oh, by the way, don't do it unworthily, lest you bring judgment on yourself. God is calling us up higher. There's a greater requirement that he has for us. As we worship the Lord, I want us to just bear our souls before him this morning. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.